c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory, I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I am still Janelle. And today we will be discussing Ernest Shackleton yet again. It's going to be very fun. Round I hope two. you're not terribly <laughs> fond of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to make my dog go sit in the living room for this one. This is this is the third horrific animal abuse one I've done in a row. So I, I think it's just because I've just been, been really into Antarctica. It's not a vegan era of history. <laughs> this is not Jessica like exploring the dark triad like a decade after no. puberty. This is no <laughs> <laughs> no warning signs here. This is un- just an unfortunate part of history. Animals. I yeah. I wanted adventure. I got dog abuse. <laughs> Oh no! A- animals have have ha- they have it rough right now, but they've also never had it better in history. Yeah, it's it's always been bad if you've been four legged and furry. I don't know what to tell you here. <laughs> oh well, it's it's always been terrible. Chihuahuas used to be used as food. Mm. That's something I remind my dog about constantly whenever she shits on her rug. Which she did just today. Which she did earlier today. Especially delicious. Furry hot pocket. Uh, But today's topic is the 1914 Imperial Transarctic Expedition and the Drift of the Endurance. The expedition was led by Sir Ernest Shackleton, an Irish slash British explorer, previously discussed on this podcast in episodes 70 and 71 on the Race to the South Pole. But to summarize, Shackleton accompanied the unsuccessful Discovery Expedition to reach the South Pole under Robert Falcon Scott in 1901, then led his own unsuccessful expedition to the South Pole aboard the Nimrod in 1907. While they failed to reach the Geographic Pole, the Nimrod Expedition netted the Magnetic Pole, among other more modest accomplishments, sufficient to earn Shackleton a knighthood and a fair amount of public acclaim. They're like, all right, well, you achieve nothing. Here's an award. Please go die on a different piece of ice. (laughs) Here's millions of dollars in modern day pounds. Have fun, you useless failure. (laughs) This is a metaphor for a great deal of government programs. Feel free to fit this into your own ideological worldview. But Shackleton attempted to capitalize on his newfound fame in several ultimately unprofitable business ventures, including a tobacco company, a series of novelty Antarctic postage stamps, and a Transylvanian mining interest. In truth, though, his primary income came from lectures about his adventures in the Antarctic. I was gonna say, one of these things is not like the other. Uh, is it the Transylvanian mining interest? (laughs) It is, in fact. That's the one. (laughs) Dead on! I don't think the tobacco company makes that much more sense. Notably, tobacco does not grow in Antarctica. (laughs) Not with that attitude, it doesn't, but the planet's getting warmer all the time. That's really what we've been striving towards as a species throughout the past hundred years. We're just trying to achieve Shackleton's dream. The heat wave is going to kill off large parts of the equatorial world, but if we can grow tobacco in the Antarctic, it's all worth it. I look forward to when Red Deer, Alberta becomes a trendy new beach location. 
Hey, New York City was recently reclassified as subtropical. So that's alarming. (laughs) That is terrifying. (laughs) From temperate to subtropical. And uh, having lived there can confirm it's just a soup of hot garbage and body sweat from June to September. (laughs) My boyfriend is still in New York City because that's where he works. But he's too cheap to run the air conditioner. So every no, he's just no. like living naked in our apartment like Mowgli. You've just left your boyfriend to slow cook in Manhattan for the past five months. Listen, the border is closed. He's stuck there. Nobody has a great deal of choice in any of this. But yeah, he's just naked in our apartment like Mowgli, eating straight out of the fridge with his bare hands, refusing to turn the air conditioner on. I have to text him every two hours to remind him to drink water because he keeps getting dizzy. i mean he must just be constantly slick is he leaving like footprints of his own sweat he's just perpetually sticky he's the stickiest (laughs) it's ever been and it's probably best for our relationship that we're in different countries right now i bet he climbs the walls like a gecko (laughs) just like an egregiously french lizard Oh, there's a lot of stereotypes in there. Licking his eyes to keep them moist. <laughs> I'm so glad he doesn't listen to this podcast. He claims he does, but I'm, I am i don't think he does. I mean, it's probably for the best. <laughs> I don't think he'd like it very much. <laughs> I think he would have broken up with me by now. <laughs> when he calls you in for that conversation, you'll know he's, 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 he's listened to the back catalog. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a harsh conversation. After news came of Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen's successful attempt on the pole in 1912, little remained in the Antarctic that would capture the public imagination enough to float an expedition financially. But in 1914, Shackleton announced his plans in a letter to the Times newspaper for an idea he had picked up from a Scottish explorer, William Spears Bruce, who had been unable to attract sufficient financial backing for the project. A full land crossing of the Antarctic continent. Hmm. In 1911, the second German Antarctic expedition, led by Wilhelm uh, Fichtner, had sailed to the Weddell Sea, intending to make the same trans-Antarctic crossing, but failed to make land. Filchner's reports nonetheless gave clues to potential landing sites in Vassal Bay. Shackleton incorporated this intel into his plans for his own expedition. The journey would require two ships. The first, the Endurance, would make a ground landing on the Vassal Bay from the Weddell Sea, where it would drop off a ground party of six led by Shackleton. The second ship, the Aurora, acquired for 3,200 pounds, would land on the opposite side of the continent at the McMurdo Sound site used by previous British expeditions, where it would set down a support team to lay supply depots along the known path to the South Pole up the Beardmore Glacier for the main team to resupply on the second half of their journey. Okay, so we've learned a little bit. We've learned a little bit. We've brought a second ship. <laughs> <laughs> we brought a cooler this time. <laughs> we haven't completely failed to learn from past experience. For instance, this time Shackleton didn't bring fucking horses. He brought dogs like a normal person. <laughs> okay, all right, we're getting there. I assume all of the dogs die anyway, but we're, we're off to a better start. You've learned, Janelle. You're already prepared for what's about to happen. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) History is just a series of movies where the dog dies. That's all of human history. The dog always dies. 
The first ship, a 300-ton, three-mast barcatine, originally named Polaris, had been specially built for Belgian explorer Adrien de Gerlache for a polar bear hunting expedition to the Svalbard Archipelago in northern Norway. Sorry, a what? This was, this was like a thing that people did? Yeah, apparently wealthy people used to pay famous explorers to take them up to the Arctic so they could have fancy hunting expeditions where they could shoot a polar bear. My god, people didn't have enough labor. (laughs) (laughs) Some people just weren't busy enough. There's a point where you get so rich you no longer care if you live or die. Like... (laughs) This is a hobby for the profoundly bored with life. Yeah, if you're at the point where you need to hunt a polar bear to feel alive, you have too much money. Yeah, it's just, like, when you are so rich, you no longer understand the concept of death. (laughs) After the project collapsed due to insolvency, Shackleton bought the ship for £14,000 and renamed it Endurance after his own family motto, By Endurance We Conquer. Hmm. The financing for the expedition was largely raised from wealthy private donors, but the British government likewise donated 10,000 pounds, over a million in modern terms. Wow. The Royal Geographical Society offered another 1,000. J.M. Barry, the uh, the creator of Peter Pan, donated 50,000 American, worth around 10,000 pounds. And military manufacturer and former Derbyshire cricketer Dudley Docker gave an additional 10,000 pounds. What did they think they were going to find in the Antarctic? Why is everybody throwing so much money at this? <laughs> Are we hunting for leprechauns? Like, what do you think is up there? Like, J.M. Barry was actually a friend of Robert Falcon Scott, which may explain his investment, but, like, it's like... It's not like it's there's gold in them hills. <laughs> there's just penguins. <laughs> penguins and cold. Right? <laughs> this is a lot of money. <laughs> it's just penguins and miles of ice. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing else. It's actually, in fact, well known for it. <laughs> just dead horses and ice as far as the eye can see. Pile of nothing. Additionally, Scottish industrialist and mathematician Sir James Key Card, uh, or Caird, I don't know. If it's Key Card, <laughs> it's hilarious, gave 24,000 pounds, and tobacco heiress Janet Stancombe Wills gave a generous but undisclosed amount. Okay. Shackleton also sold newspaper rights to the British Daily Chronicle, as well as forming the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Film Syndicate to control the film rights as well as promising a future book and and lecture tour upon his return. What is this, the Twilight franchise? They're fucking optioning it? Like, what is this? Well, you know, that's the thing. He's like, he has to mortgage the shit out of this. Because Shackleton's last expedition aboard the Nimrod was insufficiently profitable to clear most of the debts incurred in financing the voyage, meaning that most had to be written off. Oh, shit. Like, even with the modern equivalent of millions of pounds, he was still forced to cut corners, including having the funding for the Aurora, which in turn forced the surprise commander of the Aurora, Aeneas McIntosh, to haggle and beg for supplies and money to make ends meet after arriving in Australia to take up his post. And that delayed the launch of the Ross Sea Party significantly. This is just all very ominous. It's like, all right, we gotta sell enough seats to our lecture tour or you don't get any food. Or boat. (laughs) It's like, you are 
assuming the profitability of a lecture tour in order to mortgage enough biscuits to keep you alive until you get back. This is the weirdest business model I've ever heard, but I'll go on. (laughs) Shackleton, he's very well respected by historians for his leadership, for his ability, for his determination under pressure. He is not known for his business acumen. There's a reason why that Transylvanian mining interest didn't work out. Mm. Like, this whole thing does kind of sound like the early 20th century equivalent of being a travel blogger. Like, it's not the most steady way to make money, but there are people who are making a killing at this somehow. I don't understand how, but it is apparently possible. He's using a lot of other people's money to head to picturesque locations he has no right being. Excellent. Aeneas McIntosh uh, was mentioned in our previous episode as the original second-in-command of the Nimrod expedition who lost his fucking eye in an unexplained accident. I finally managed to dig up more on the incident, and apparently he was struck in the face by a swinging hook while helping move sledging gear, and it had to be removed by expedition doctor Eric Marshall using improvised surgical equipment. Which is fun. (laughs) I hate it when that (laughs) happens. (laughs) Oh, every time. And, like, I mentioned on the last one, I'm just like, no one is telling me what happened. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) I hate it when you're just on your expedition and all of a sudden somebody's taking a hook out of your face with a trowel. Like the kind of blue-collar accident that happens all the time, but it's weird when you you yada 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 the hook to the face. (laughs) Like, you can't just skip over the improvised eye surgery, thank you. (laughs) A minor hiccup. An unimportant detail. It's like the time my family went on a road trip to Montana and my dad forgot to pack any shirts for a two-week trip. Except (laughs) it's digging a hook out of a man's face with a screwdriver. You know, these things happen. See, and like, I wish I didn't empathize with that story. I wish it didn't feel familiar to me, but my brother once went on a weekend journey when we were going to a wedding in only the clothes on his back, which was a (laughs) pair of shorts and a (laughs) t-shirt. As one does. He just, he doesn't want to take focus from the bride. (laughs) I mean, it's really her day. (laughs) Other than Macintosh and the bosun, the only Antarctic veteran on the Aurora crew was Seaman Ernest Joyce. Shackleton built the expedition team around a core of seasoned explorers who had joined previous Antarctic expeditions. Second in command was Frank Wilde, a veteran of both the Discovery and the Nimrod expeditions, who had accompanied Shackleton on his attempt on the South Pole, and whose calm temperament was a balance to Shackleton's occasional temper and propensity for whimsy. The second officer was a tall Irishman, Thomas Crean, and third officer was a tiny Englishman, Alfred Cheatham, both experienced Antarctic explorers. Seaman Thomas MacLeod and artist George Marston, described as a chubby, boyish-faced man, were old hands from the Nimrod expedition. Over 5,000 applications to join the voyage were submitted, including one letter from three enthusiastic young women who offered to dress in masculine attire should their more feminine garb prove inconvenient. (laughs) I will wear pants. Take me to the ice. (laughs) I'm ready! (laughs) Put me in, coach! (laughs) I'll wear pants! (laughs) 
boxers are a sacrifice I'm willing to make. (laughs) (laughs) Shackleton's interview process was notably eccentric as he valued character and temperament equal to technical skill, given the importance of interpersonal compatibility on a long and difficult journey. He often made hiring decisions on gut feeling, his interviews lasting less than five minutes. Oh, that seems like a mistake. (laughs) That doesn't seem like a thorough process. (laughs) It seems like a poor choice. Yeah, like, I I don't know what to tell you, but, like, if you think that you know a good candidate by a firm handshake, you are definitely wrong. (laughs) There's, like, one interview question. Do I like the cut of your jib? (laughs) that's it that's a hundred percent of the interview you're on board son (laughs) leonard hussey was hired on as a meteorologist despite few qualifications as shackleton thought him funny looking and found the idea of taking a man who had just returned from an anthropological mission to sedan in north africa immediately to antarctica amusing oh (laughs) oh oh that's not a good choice Yeah, I looked up a picture of Leonard Hussey. Perfectly normal looking dude. He's not weird looking at all. (laughs) He has a funny name and he's been to Africa. Get on the boat. (laughs) He finds him amusing in the same way as the idea of putting an ice cube in a hot glass of tea. I mean, this guy is choosing his crew the same way junior high bullies find their targets. Like... Who is the funniest? (laughs) I like your nose. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Shackleton asked physicist Reginald James, among other things, if he could sing. Dr. Alexander Macklin, one of the two surgeons, was selected after Shackleton asked him why he was wearing glasses, and he responded, Many a wise face would look foolish without spectacles. (laughs) The commander of the Endurance was Frank Worsley, a New Zealand sailor prone to flights of fancy, who said that he applied after learning of the expedition in a dream. Oh, uh, good! Over the, <laughs> over the course of the voyage, he became known as Wuzzles. Man, if we were sponsored, this would be such a good place for a zip recruiter ad. <laughs> uh, tired of getting all of your expedition men from the back of a bus or picking them out of a crowd based on the shape of their malformed skulls you need zip recruiter <laughs> zip recruiter a better way to hire <laughs> we did that completely for free give us money <laughs> foolproof it feels like this is the kind of expedition you do actually need to have some kind of expertise to go on. Like, this seems technically yeah. difficult. And he's just like, no, yeah, like, this man who learned about it in a dream seems great. Get on the boat. Get on there. This is one of the most challenging, dangerous environments on the planet. <laughs> it's like he's trying to put together the cast of an 80s misfit comedy. What are these choices? Listen, I have hired people before, which is terrifying. But even I make better choices than this. You make better choices in your boyfriends than this. (laughs) And that has been a story tale. That's been a theme. (laughs) You have a better process for picking what malformed misfit in a trench coat you want to next swap spit with. (laughs) (laughs) This one can't feed himself? Excellent. Please move in with me immediately. 
Eventually, the crews for both ships were settled at 28 men apiece. 1914, when the voyage was set to leave from Plymouth, England, is a year primarily known for something very different than the entrepreneurial spirit of Antarctic exploration. Notably, the assassination of little Frankie Ferdinand in the outbreak of World War I. In August, after a discussion with both major financial backers and the members of the crew, despite the massive potential financial exposure of canceling the mission, Shackleton placed the final word on whether the journey would continue as planned, regardless of unfolding events, in the hands of the British government. The reply from the government was a one-word telegram, proceed, followed two hours later by a longer missive from the First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, giving full permission to launch. And we're off. Shackleton, delayed by business, would rejoin the Endurance in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Another passenger (laughs) not yet mentioned was the ship's cat, Mrs. Chippy, so named because it was the constant companion of the ship's carpenter, Harry Chippy McNish. Mrs. Chippy was known for his ability to walk along thin railings and climb the riggings even in rough seas. On September 13th, Mrs. Chippy jumped overboard through a cabin porthole, and when his screams were reported by the officer on watch, navigator Hudson, they returned the ship around, and biologist Robert Clark fished him out with a sample net. Okay, so they wanted one animal associated with the expedition to live. They cared about exactly one animal. Everybody else can... Walk off a pier. I mean, Mrs. Chippy also did walk off a pier. It's just that they, <laughs> they tried to repair the situation. <laughs> they gave a shit if she lived or died. Uh, he. Oh, he- Mrs. Chippy? Yeah, Mrs. Ch- I don't. I don't think they checked. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, it's hard to tell the gender of a cat, but okay. They just named him Mrs. Chippy because he was he was obsessed with the carpenter. I I think I think they just thought that one was. Too good of a knee slapper to let go of. (laughs) Just on petty details like a penis. It's such a good joke. It's the only animal they ever rescued from death. (laughs) (laughs) It's too good to let him die. (laughs) Get that cat up here. Turn this boat around. That cat's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) They sailed from Buenos Aires on the morning of October 26th accompanied by a few last-minute hires, including young William Lincoln Blakewell, the only American. He officially joined the voyage alongside his even younger friend, Purse Blackborough, an 18-year-old Welsh sailor who unofficially joined the voyage as a stowaway after his own application was rejected with the help of Blakewell MacLeod and English Walter Howe, who hit him in a storage locker full of clothes. <laughs> Was he, like, not funny enough to get on the voyage legitimately? <laughs> Honestly, at this point, like, I trust their hiring decisions so little that I assume everybody who didn't get picked is more qualified than everyone who did. He's at least skilled enough not to get discovered for at least three days. <laughs> so, a- And after three days, he was discovered quite intentionally, <laughs> as they were now too far out to turn back. He had to be sat in a chair as he was unable to stand for the vicious dressing down Shackleton gave him in front of the entire crew, which quickly flushed out his compatriots by their reactions. (laughs) Shackleton finished by telling Blackborough, Do you know that on these expeditions we often get very hungry, and if there is a stowaway available, he is the first to be eaten? (laughs) Wow, harsh. (laughs) 
Blackborough won Shackleton over by replying, they get a lot more meat off you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bold. It's a bold strategy, but it paid off. <laughs> Shackleton, uh, he's just like, you're hired. And they're like, what? <laughs> I like the cut of your jib after all. That's all that matters here is cuts of jibs. Shackleton shortly thereafter instructed a crew member to introduce Blackborough to the cook. Specifically, <laughs> he was assigned as the cook's assistant. <laughs> <laughs> wink, wink. Just a nudge, fun nudge. joke from me. You will assist <laughs> him in making dinner, if you know what I mean. You, you look like you make good food. <laughs> <laughs> hint, hint. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is gonna go so poorly. <laughs> It is all my favorite things, Janelle. <laughs> <laughs> Cannibalism and ill-fated government-sponsored voyages? <laughs> Jessica's just like, yes, I love bad business ventures and huge wastes of public money. Bring it on. <laughs> That's why I'm so fond of the $4.8 million chandelier hanging below Granville Bridge. <laughs> I love that Vancouver spent $5 million on an art installation for a chandelier to mock the homeless. Just, wow. Once a day, it drops down and spins. Just <laughs> to really piss in their eyes. <laughs> it would cost you less money to line up every homeless man in the city and spit personally in their mouths. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> in contrast to Scott's preference for strict naval discipline, Shackleton took a more relaxed approach to the ship hierarchy and socialized with the crew every evening, leading various games and entertainment. On November 5th, 1914, the Endurance arrived at a whaling station whose name I have deemed unpronounceable on the island of South Georgia, a British possession described by Wikipedia as desolate and inhospitable. Good. Excellent. Great start. It's near the Falklands. <laughs> Shackleton was known to the crew behind his back as Cautious Jack, but they generally referred to him quite simply as Boss. That's the mildest sea nickname ever. Surprisingly polite. <laughs> On the advice of the whalers that ice conditions in the Weddell Sea were extremely poor, Shackleton decided to wait and see if they improved before moving forward. From the whalers, he likewise learned that the Weddell Sea was a rough circle contained on one side by Antarctica, on another by the Palmer Peninsula, and finally by the South Sandwich Islands, which, I shit you not, are named for John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, the same dude after which we named the practice of using two slices of bread as a combination of plate and cutlery for other messier food. A true visionary. He's done better for us than most of the aristocracy. <laughs> A man of the people. <laughs> Before his time. Sea ice tended to become trapped in between these land masses, where a prevailing current cycled it clockwise. During this time, the crew played a prank on the somewhat dim navigator, Hubert Hudson, whom they told that a social occasion ashore was a costume party dressing him in a bedsheet with a teapot lid tied to his head with a ribbon as some makeshift version of a Tibetan monk, then rowing him to shore through the icy air, where he entered the home of a whaling factory manager who was very much not wearing a costume. <laughs> okay, excellent prank. The guy's kind of an idiot for thinking there's a costume party way the fuck out there, but, you know, solid, solid prank. This earned him the nickname Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> 
Finally, on December 4th, the Endurance left South Georgia, hoping to skirt around the northeast perimeter of the sea and avoid the pack ice as they headed towards the coast. Uh, they hung whale meat intended as dog food from the rigging, as there was little room below deck. This is already comfortably nightmarish enough, but the meat also dripped a constant stream of blood, setting the 69 Canadian mutt sledge dogs aboard into a frenzy. Hmm. Late December 7th, they encountered thick ice requiring the ship to detour around it. The Endurance managed its careful dance around the impenetrable ice, but as the weeks passed, their progress grew slower and slower. In early January, they found themselves hemmed in on all sides, but they likewise discovered an easy path through new, brittle ice that gave way beneath the hull. January 10th, they spotted land, in the form of giant barrier cliffs, which they followed towards Vassal Bay. On the 15th, they pondered setting down on the nearby coast, which appeared a prime place to land, but Shackleton decided against it, deeming it too far north for their purposes. On the morning of the 16th, they came across heavy pack ice, where they were unable to find a path forward. Around 8pm, they took shelter from the worsening weather in the lee of a large grounded iceberg. The gale grew only worse the next day, and so it wasn't until the 18th that they proceeded once more. Around 5 p.m., after working through the difficult, another difficult path, patch of pack ice, they found themselves in an odd, slushy, puddle-like mixture of water and lumpy snow. Mmm, very familiar with that as a Canadian. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's called pancake ice. Oh, I call it Edmonton City Street. <laughs> I call it gross. <laughs> <laughs> At 7 p.m., they tried to maneuver between two large ice floes and found themselves barely able to push through the slush, even with the engines at full speed. Another flow closed the way behind them, and they decided to wait and see if a suddenly shift in the wind might open up the way ahead. Midnight, January 24th, a 15-foot crack in the ice appeared 50 yards ahead, and by mid-morning, it was a quarter mile across. But no matter how they pushed, they could not break through to it. They found themselves stuck fast in the ice, unable to budge. The hard, southerly gale they needed never came. A freak shift in the normal wind patterns, considering the season. On the 25th, they attempted to cut through the ice, to no avail. On January 31st, they began using their battery-powered Morse code radio. Navigator Hudson and physicist Reginald James increased the range of the radio by attaching an additional 180 feet to the antenna wire and sol soldering all of the joints. The radio, something of a novelty at the time, had no transmitter, only a receiver, meaning they could not use it to call for help or relay their position. Oh, useful! So it's complete <laughs> garbage! <laughs> <laughs> Who needs to call for help in the Antarctic? That's only the number one most important thing about a radio. <laughs> On a crew staffed entirely by the funniest looking applicants you could find. And like, why else would you bring a radio? Are you going to listen in to some tunes? <laughs> <laughs> what was the purpose of this? Just some great 1800s hits? <laughs> we just want to hear if other people are in distress so we can laugh at them. Yeah, we, we just enjoy mocking the misfortune of others. If you're gonna cut corners on costs, the radio is not the place to do it. A another few times in early February, they spotted nearby cracked ice and attempted to free themselves, again to no avail. 
When another opportunity opened on the 14th, they managed to saw and chisel themselves a 150-yard channel. The next day, they rammed the V-shaped channel they had made in the ice again and again. Finally, at 3 p.m., after busting through 600 yards of ice, Shackleton called the ramming effort off, the remaining 400 yards of ice being 12 to 18 feet thick. Holy shit. Even then, the crew kept cutting at the ice in desperation until midnight of their own volition. The Antarctic summer was ending, and they were stuck, drifting along with the ice. They were 600 miles from Vassal Bay, but with no way of knowing what lay between them and land should they decide to attempt to make their way on foot, packing a year's worth of supplies, equipment, and lumber with the aid of only man-hauling and untrained sledge dogs. The dogs were transferred from the ship to the ice, where they were kenneled in individual dog igloos that I kid you not, they called dogloos. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's excellent. One of the odder things about this story, like one of the sad things for me as someone who's really interested in history, is that most of my favorite people are dead, and have been for some time. But this is the closest I have come to, like, really feeling a connection with a bunch of people. They just feel like they'd be fun to hang out with. I don't think Shackleton's methods were entirely off base. (laughs) (laughs) The inventor of the dogloo can't be all bad. So rarely are the kinds of reprobates I would spend my spare time with recorded in history. Listen, as long as you were willing to wear masculine clothing, you were all set. (laughs) Boxers and onto the ship. Fucking check mark. (laughs) I'll glue on some fake chest hair. Just take me with (laughs) you. The officers and scientists likewise moved from their regular wardroom to the warmth of the between-deck storage area, which they named the Ritz. The crew likewise hunted for meat and blubber to use as food and fuel. This was relatively easy, as seals and penguins have no land-based natural predators, and they weren't really ready for the weird naked bipeds that had been fucking up wildlife on every other continent for thousands of years. (laughs) Unprepared. Uh, They they didn't see it coming. (laughs) Specifically, they didn't see the ore that was smacked into their head coming. Oh. Poor creatures. Frank Worsley acted as game spotter because of his uncanny ability to spot seals at a distance of up to three and a half miles from the crow's nest. (laughs) I have a very specific set of skills. And if you are a seal, I will find you. And I will kill you. He used telescopes, binoculars, and a megaphone, as well as a large flag to signal the men on the ground about the location of nearby prey and inconvenient pods of killer whales. Frank Wilde was his primary hunter, skiing out to the seals, lounging about, and capping them in the head. Also a very specific set of skills. Yeah, Frank Wilde, he's, his primary skill, you will tend to find, uh, comes out in mostly murdering every fur-bearing creature within earshot. <laughs> they likewise began training the dogs. The permanent sledge teams were assigned in early April to Crean, Australian photographer Frank Hurley, Macklin, Marston, Dr. James McElroy, and Wild. Kind of feels like they should have started on the dog training before they got there. They basically <laughs> just had these dogs ship straight from Canada to Argentina and pick them up in Buenos Aires. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, just a bunch of dogs who've been locked in kennels on trains for fucking weeks. Oh, good. 
They're in tip-top shape. It's as close as you can get to being feral without living in a slum. That's what these dogs are. <laughs> That's what I want my life to depend on. They've just been nose to butthole for months. <laughs> By then, they had lost several dogs to an odd wasting illness that had turned out to be caused by large parasitic worms. Oh, uh, great. Everybody's got worms. Delightful. They apparently had forgot the dewormer at home. I would say like a 6 out of 10 for crew selection and like a negative 4 for veterinary skills. Literally everyone who owns a dog knows you need to deworm the bastards. They like to eat their own shit. Could you deworm a dog back then? I wonder. Oh, absolutely. Could you? Oh. Oh, yeah. Like, that was a normal part of veterinary care. Okay, and they just didn't. They just completely fucked up. You gotta deworm children sometimes, so, you know. (laughs) Yeah, like, I know a guy who eats raw fucking bacon, and he's gonna get tapeworms. Only you would casually have a friend who eats raw pork. I mean, it is former Hong Kong drug lord, so... Oh, right. He's, he's a special man in many ways. <laughs> is Does he just not know you're supposed to cook it, or does he prefer it? I I think it's a preference. Oh, I no. Think, I, I think there's a part of him that just likes upsetting people. <laughs> oh, dear. He once described his relationship with his mother to me and explained a lot. Oh, no. many of the dogs were extremely aggressive and the men had to physically intercede in their fights to stop them from killing one another also great dr macklin generally a gentle fellow had a particularly interesting way of interrupting fights in that he would stun the aggressor with an uppercut to the jaw oh oh right then just straight up punching dogs in the arctic (laughs) great as one does just going full-on George Foreman on their passes. <laughs> Honestly, he kind of reminds me of my younger sister. Not that she routinely <laughs> delivers haymakers to dogs. I was gonna say. <laughs> oh my god. What is the last time your sister pile-drived a dog into the living room floor? My god. My younger sister, she has, like, really big dogs. They're, like, at least 60, 70 pounds. They're quite large. And my mom and dad have these two tiny, prissy little poodles um, that weigh about 20 to 30 pounds. Actually, Leela might be a bit heavier. She's a bit tubby, but uh, <laughs> she's, she's a chunky gal. But Naya is like a 20-pound dog. And Kaya, who is huge, she thinks that what she should do when Naya won't look at something that she finds interesting is she should pick her up in her mouth and just drag her to it. So probably the last time my sister engaged in hand-to-hand combat with a dog was the last time Kaya decided that Naya needed to see this cool dead bird she found. (laughs) I love dogs. They are fascinating creatures. My my parents have talked about getting Naya, like, an anti-coyote vest. <laughs> it's basically just a vest with a whole bunch of spikes in it, which would just make her look like the punkest poodle on the prairies. <laughs> <laughs> like a poodle cosplaying as a hedgehog. It's gonna be great. That, that's actually why uh, junkyard dogs stereotypically have those spiked collars. It's actually to help them from getting their jugular ripped out during fights. All the while, they slowly drifted west, then gradually more northwest in March, and distinctly northwest in April. 
Slowly, too, their drift began to pick up speed. In May, permanent night began. Oh, good. The crew of Adrienne de Gerlache was driven to near insanity when they became stuck in the ice in 1898 and were forced to winter in the Antarctic Circle. Tales of that episode include numerous crew members walking laps around the ship to maintain their sense of reality, another crew member dying from a heart attack due to his fear of the darkness, and yet another hiding in tiny crevices in the ship to sleep because he was convinced the rest of the crew intended to kill him. Oh, you know when you're doing a lap on a fucking boat frozen in the ice just to feel alive? The things have gone wrong. It, it's kind of like when after we were in uh, lockdown for some time, when it was just like, I will go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> anywhere that isn't here. Grocery store? I'm for it. Like <laughs> The no frills is basically the highlight of my week. Let me out. I took my mom to a grocery store for the first time. Like, she literally hasn't left the house since March. She finally... Got to go back to a grocery store, and I think she bought, like, 400 bucks worth of stuff. She was buying, like, pool noodles and marshmallow bananas. Retail therapy. I and mean, as we're checking out, my mom's like, I've been indoors forever, and the cashier's like, yeah, I, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rough time right now for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Everybody else poked their head out two months ago, but glad you're doing all right there, Elizabeth. <laughs> Nova Scotia has had, like, a dozen cases in the last two months. We're very, very low risk, but my mom is taking... <laughs> No chances. Despite the vast differences between the crew of the Endurance, they maintained their sanity and their morale well. There was a sense of companionship, even among the odder and more unpleasant members of the crew. Blackboro, the stowaway, was quiet, smart, and cheerful, and treated as much like anyone else. Bobby Clark, the biologist, was a dour, humorless man, excited only by dredging up samples, leading to a prank where the crew filled one of his formaldehyde jars with cooked spaghetti. <laughs> okay that's pretty good i like that a lot of these jokes they hold up <laughs> they do they do comedy often ages poorly but these are spot on yeah that is that is funny a hundred years later <laughs> <laughs> Crean was notably vulgar and tactless but nonetheless held a particular place in shackleton's regard the cook charlie green known as chef cookie and dough balls was notably odd a frail man known for his high squeaky voice and an accident sometime in his youth where he had lost one of his testicles. Okay, also still funny a hundred years later. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> also holds up comedically. On one crew member's birthday, Green produced a cake, which turned out to be an icing frosted balloon. On another birthday, he served a frosted block of wood. <laughs> also funny. This is also funny! Also funny! I love it! That's still good! <laughs> Meteorologist Hussey was a particular prankster and sharp-tongued in addition to playing the banjo. John Vincent was, among the seamen, known as a bully who used his physical strength to throw his weight around, including demanding to be served first at meals. This despite being the least experienced among them. His behavior was reported to Shackleton by the soft-spoken Howe, and Shackleton put an immediate stop to it. The crew even held a mock trial for Worsley, who stood accused of robbing a Presbyterian church of a trouser button out of the offertory bag, and having turned the same to base and ignoble use. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think means that he stole a button out of the offering plate and then fucked it, but I'm not willing to say. <laughs> I, yeah, that's that's some some ominous old-timey language, but something despicable happened. 
Wilde acted as judge, Reginald James as prosecutor, and Marine Captain Thomas Ordelese as attorney for the defense. First Officer Lionel Greenstreet and Dr. Mickelroy testified against the accused and in turn Worsley offered to buy the judge a drink after the trial. Wilde charged the jury to find Worsley innocent, but they nonetheless found him guilty unanimously on the first ballot. <laughs> Hate it when that happens. They were possibly having a little too much fun. <laughs> too far. They took it too far. They had a phonograph, but its use was limited because they lacked needles due to an error where Wilde failed to specify that they wanted the gramophone kind. Ordelese, the storekeeper, eventually discovered that they had around 5,000 surplus sewing needles. <laughs> <laughs> How does that kind of miscommunication even happen? I mean, I think I understand why they didn't have enough money. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Although, are sewing needles more expensive than gramophone needles or less? They don't seem like they'd be particularly pricey. I have absolutely no frame of reference for the cost of gramophone parts. It seems like they'd be cheaper. <laughs> it's less specialized in any case. It's just a piece of metal with a hole in one end. In mid-June, they had a dog derby after Hurley bragged that he had the fastest sledge team. Wilde won the first race, but Hurley demanded a rematch, saying that he had been loaded with more weight. Hurley won the second due to Wilde's passenger, Shackleton, falling off the sled on a turn, resulting in Wilde's disqualification. This has stopped being, like, a legitimate scientific expedition a long time ago. This is just a bunch of frat boys fucking around on a boat. See, because the thing is, like, Shackleton was the one in charge of the parties and the games on the first Discovery expedition, and then they just let that guy be in charge. They let the <laughs> dude in charge of the party lead the expedition. <laughs> they just set him free. He's like, I have no chains to hold me back, dog race. <laughs> Ordelese was alternately known as the Colonel, Belly Burglar, and Old Lady for his stinginess, and Man of Action for his laziness. Despite this abuse, he could not be provoked and tended to give a hurt, now really, you shouldn't say things like that, in response to all teasing. He was... Oddly childlike, leaping from ice floe to ice floe while hunting seals, even in the presence of killer whales. Okay, that sounds fun. At one point, he found a bicycle in the hold and took it for a ride out on the ice. When he had not returned after two hours, a search party was sent out. When he was brought back, Shackleton ordered him never to leave unaccompanied again and ordered Worsley to see that Ordelese did as he was told. <laughs> He was disliked by everyone, including Shackleton, who at one point even told him so explicitly, which Ordelese dutifully recorded in his diary in the third person as if it had happened to somebody else and he were merely an observer. <laughs> <laughs> they all just don't give a shit anymore. They've all just snapped at this point. Ordelese was likewise unmalicious and rather silly, so they mostly contented themselves with merely making fun of him. On Midwinter's Day, June 22nd, they decorated the Ritz with flags and bunting and held a series of performances introduced by Shackleton, including Ordelese dressed as a Methodist minister, Reverend Bubbling Love, who lectured the assembled on the wages of sin, Reginald James delivering a lecture about the calorie as Herr Professor von Schopenbaum, and Dr. Mickelroy dressing as a saucy Spanish lady with a low-cut evening gown and high-slit skirt and dancing, this alongside other singing and recitation. <laughs> okay, this sounds great. 
I'm I'm mad that I missed this by virtue of being not born a hundred years ago as a man. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'd be willing to wear boxers for this. This is awesome. <laughs> The festivities ended at midnight with all singing God Save the King. Filchner's ship, too, had become stuck in the pack ice for around six months during his attempt on the continent before spring came and the ship was released to sail again, none the worse for wear. Similarly, Shackleton hoped that they would eventually be freed to make another attempt at a landing the following season. They would have to depend on luck, however, that the Endurance would not be caught in any of the violent forces of the shifting ice, either torn apart or crushed. While the ship was wider and stubbier than both intended for open water, the better to avoid the ice's grip, it was nowhere near as strong as some specially designed vessels intended to be driven into the clutches of pack ice over long periods of time, such as Norwegian polar exploring vessel Fram. July 14th, a southwest wind began to blow, and that evening, the snow began to fall. In the small hours of the following morning, the wind whipped through the masts and rigging at 70 miles per hour, and the temperature fell to negative 34 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 37 degrees Celsius. In order to feed the dogs kenneled a few feet from the ship, the men had to crawl on their hands and knees to avoid being blown off their feet. Oh, shit. On the westward side of the Endurance, 14-foot snowdrifts develop, and the weight of the snow pushed the ship down a foot. The next day, they fed the dogs half a pound of lard each and cleared the snow around the kennels to avoid the ice beneath from them from buckling. Is that a recommended dog diet? I have doubts. I mean, I wouldn't swear to it, but I don't think these dogs are going to suffer from coronary problems, if that's what you mean. I'm not sure that I'm going to try it with my own chihuahua. <laughs> I, th I don't think that's recommended for Bianca's breed. I won't be able to lift her onto the bed. She'll look like a tiny basketball with ears, but, you know. It's just kind of saggy and half-inflated. Poor girl. She's glaring at me right now. She can tell that I'm hypothetically fat-shaming her. <laughs> See, it just reminds me of in grade school when the wind was really, really rough during recess. And when you turned your face into it, it hurt. But if you turned your back to it, it would go around your face and you wouldn't have enough air. The classic Albertan childhood dilemma. <laughs> the storm broke up the surrounding ice, but not the flow that held the endurance. This meant dozens and dozens of independently moving slabs of heavy ice, which could slam into one another like miniature tectonic plates, sometimes piling atop one another, sometimes rebounding off of one another, and sometimes cracking underneath the pressure. On the night of July 21st, the ice flow holding the endurance began to crack, but as the days passed, while they felt the tremors shake the ship from time to time, the flow did not break. Even the return of a sliver of the sun could not fully lift the shadow of unease. August 1st, while the sledge leads were shoveling away from the dogloos, suddenly there was a great tremor, and the endurance jerked upward, reeling back, before descending once more with a roll, the flow having broke at last. Shackleton and the rest of the crew arrived on deck, and he ordered the men and dogs aboard the boat. The men pulled up the dogs' chains and quickly brought them up the gangway, all in less than eight minutes. The ice slammed against the Endurance, pushing her forward and sideways. It smashed against the bow, then overlapped with the solid ice behind it, and smashed against her again. The Ooh. men found this ominous. The dogs found it delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, happy fun time. 
Around noon, the ice began to settle down, but the whaling boats were nonetheless cleared for lowering, and all hands ordered to keep their warmest clothes at hand. By the next morning, the ice had frozen solid again, and the men set themselves to building new kennels on the deck, completed over the next several days. Paradoxically, the episode appears to have calmed many of the men, though Shackleton warned them against complacency. They thought that they had been through the worst, and that the endurance had endured. The crew resumed hockey games, and Thomas Crean harnessed some of the puppies the dogs had had for sledging practice. Well, they're breeding dogs at this point. That's wild. Yeah, they have a surplus of dog. At midnight, August 29th, however, a heavy shock hit the ship, followed by what sounded like a distant thunderclap. In the morning, they found a thin crack across the ice out from the ship's stern. Ooh, that is ominous. At 3.30 p.m., a second shock shook the ship. The only apparent effect was a slight widening of the crack. The 31st was peaceful, until 10 at night, when the timbers of the Endurance began to groan, forcing the men to try to sleep past the creaking wood and the scraping ice. While the next morning was quiet, the pressure once more began to build in the afternoon, and the night that followed was even worse. But by the afternoon after that, things had settled once more. In mid-September, wildlife returned to the area and immediately became sport for the bored and uneasy men aboard the Endurance. (laughs) September 30th, at 3pm, over the course of an hour, the entire ship shuddered. Chippy McNeish, in the between-deck storage area, saw the beams above his head bend like a thin cane under pressure. On deck, the foremast swayed and jerked. The incident left many of the decks permanently warped. Less than ideal. (laughs) October 14th, the Endurance finally broke free from the warming ice and sat in a small space of open water. On the 16th, Shackleton ordered they fire up the engine once more. However, while pumping the boilers full, they discovered a leak and had to empty them for repair. Instead, they tried to push against the crack in the ice with sail power with no success. 4.45 p.m. on the 18th, the ice closed in again, rolling the ship portward and holding her at a 30-degree angle. The men lashed down everything loose and nailed strips of wood to the deck to give the dogs a grip. It wasn't until 8pm that the ice relented and the ship righted itself, at which point the crew set to chopping ice away from the rudder. At 10, they pumped up the boilers again, and at 1am, they finally slept. On the evening of October 24th, the ice pinned the Endurance, tearing away the stern post and letting seawater into the forward hold. The engine room bilge pumps could not control the water coming in, and the intakes for the pumps were frozen, until an hour later when they managed to defrost the pipes with the help of boiling water and a blowtorch. McNeish built a coffer dam ten feet away from the stern post to seal off that section of the ship. Dawn the next day, Shackleton ordered an hour rest for the men exhausted from hours and hours of fighting the ice and working the pumps. At mid-morning, he had the sledge teams wait overboard in case they needed to abandon ship. Later that evening, a small group of around ten emperor penguins waddled up and made strange mournful cries, which the men took as ill omen. (laughs) In fairness, I probably would too. Finally, late on the afternoon of October 27th, Shackleton ordered that they abandon ship and transfer supplies to the ice floe. The tortured sound of the endurance as she warped under the intense pressure was compared to the cries of a dying animal. (laughs) Oh! The sound of her timbers breaking sounded like gunshots. The ice held her in place, 
and she would not sink completely until November 21st. Their next nearest source of supplies that were not stripped from the carcass of an unwary seal was on tiny Paulet Island, where an emergency cache had been placed following a 1903 incident where a Swedish expedition's ship had been similarly crushed by the ice. Shackleton himself had been involved in the provisioning of the cache as part of the rescue effort. Unfortunately, Paulet Island was approximately 346 miles northwest, and they would have to walk dragging the whaling boats along behind them in case they encountered open water. Before the march could begin, Shackleton commanded the crew to leave behind all that they could and that each man should keep only the clothes they wore, two pairs of mittens, six pairs of socks, two pairs of boots, a sleeping bag, a pound of tobacco, and two pounds of personal gear. Nothing was so sentimental as to be weighed against their lives. I like how much tobacco they put in their, like, absolutely essential survival provisions. Essential! Should I bring an an additional pound of food? No, it's the tobacco that we need. That's that's the thing, is like, one, that is a fuck ton of tobacco. Two, it's tobacco. (laughs) As an example, Shackleton then threw several gold sovereigns and a gold cigar case into the snow. He likewise took a Bible given to them by Queen Alexandra, removing the flyleaf, the page containing the Lord's Prayer, and a passage from Job. Out of whose womb came the ice, and the hoary frost of heaven, who hath gathered it? The waters are hid as with a stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Then he laid the Bible in the snow and walked away. <laughs> oh, oh, that's very s- symbolic and also ominous. Like, the Lord's Prayer is one of those classic prayers that most everybody knows, but it has a very specific meaning in this context. Yeah. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. (laughs) (laughs) And death is just pissed off orcas that think I'm a seal. (laughs) The shadow is beneath the ice, and it is is hungry. (laughs) Exceptions were made for medical supplies carried by the surgeons, personal diaries, and Frank Hurley's photograph plates, scavenged from the wreck of the Endurance a few days later. Hurley sorted through the best 150 of the photos he had taken out of 500 plates recovered and destroyed the rest. Hussey was likewise ordered to bring his 12-pound banjo, which was placed under cover in one of the whalers to save it from the weather. Oh yes, that seems essential. <laughs> Bring the banjo! It's the only thing keeping us alive. What banjo weighs 12 pounds? Like, that seems heavy for a banjo. I don't know. I don't know if zizzer banjos are particularly heavy. I'm not a banjo expert, and there's only so far I'm willing to go on the details on this. <laughs> I mean, they are metal. They are metal. So maybe, because... God, a wooden instrument in the Antarctic seems like a terrible idea, but, uh... (laughs) Average weight banjo. That seems like a bad priority over food. 12 to 14 pounds. Apparently that's a normal banjo. Oh, so they had the light, portable, sleek variety. They had the new, chic banjo for the modern lunatic. (laughs) (laughs) Who prioritizes banjo music over survival. On the day they were to begin their march, October 30th, Shackleton ordered the weakest animals killed, including Mrs. Chippy the cat, the three youngest puppies, and an older puppy named Sirius who had never been broken to harness and whom Macklin had taken on as a pet. And now, I would like to ask anybody squeamish about animals to skip ahead exactly one minute. Just press the 30-second skip twice, okay? Go! This is the Animal Abuse Power Hour. 
Don't use up our time, Janelle. Crean took the first four a conscientious distance from camp to shoot them, while Macklin took care of Sirius personally. Macklin's task was complicated by the little dog's attempt to jump on him and lick his hands and his own shaking, which forced him to reload and use the second round after his first attempt with the shotgun failed to do the job. Mm. Oh. <laughs> oh. That is the most fucked up detail we're going to encounter. Congratulations if you sat through it. <laughs> oh, man, I'm gonna go hug my chihuahua. I'm not gonna bake you in the oven, Bianca. While Macklin was deeply affected by the loss of his puppy, Chippy McNeish never fully forgave the untimely death of his tomcat. Oh. He died in poverty in Wellington, New Zealand in 1930 and was buried in an unmarked grave. In 1959, the New Zealand Antarctic Society added a headstone, and in 2004, a life-size bronze statue of Mrs. Chippy. <laughs> I like it. Finally, somebody gets the recognition they deserve. Closure. <laughs> there should be recognition of the sacrifices of Mrs. Chippy. <laughs> the, I hope, first cat to go to the Antarctic. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully. That we know of. They left at 2 p.m., cutting through the pressure ridges with shovels and pickaxes in order to pass. They stuck close together for fear that the ice might crack and separate them. Progress was slow, with the dog's sledge teams performing multiple trips to bring forward equipment, and after three hours, they had only advanced a mile from the ship. They marched the next day as well, but so arduous was the advance that Shackleton called off the attempt the next morning. Deciding that the flow they stood on was sufficiently sturdy to trust and that they would make permanent camp there and wait for the ice drift northwestward, as it likely would. Shackleton ordered Green to begin putting lumps of blubber into the stew so that they could acclimatize themselves to the taste. Mmm. It's got a... it's an acquired taste and you have to acquire it to live. Shackleton met with Wild, Worsley, and Hurley to evaluate their food stores and future plans. They would have seals and penguin aplenty until summer's end, at which point they would have to rely on the three months sledging rations they had brought with them. January, the middle of the Antarctic summer, would be their decision point. If the flow drifted northward, they would continue with it and use the boats to cross open water and make landfall. If it drifted eastward or stopped, they would make a mad dash for the nearest land across the ice, abandoning the boats and using a punt McNeish had fashioned to ferry across any open water. If they drifted eastward but were unable to launch out onto the water, they would be forced to winter atop the ice, huddled in their tents and sleeping bags under the onslaught of the violent storms and vicious chills. Hmm. You know, camping. <laughs> it's fun. Let's make some s'mores. <laughs> <laughs> Tell some ghost stories. This really went downhill fast from, like, jaunty drag shows uh, to outdoor death camping. There is little obvious reason as to why Hurley, a photographer, would be included in such a discussion. He was pulled in not for his expertise, but as a way of shoring up morale. Shackleton felt intensely responsible for every member of his crew, having rightfully come to the conclusion that he had gotten them into this mess. While starvation and exposure were both threats, far more so was disunity and discord among the men. Shackleton needed each and every one utterly devoted to him and to one another. Hurley was a good worker and a superb photographer, but he was likewise a man who needed to feel important and responded best to flattery. 
Shackleton, possibly unnecessarily, made a point of complimenting Hurley and soliciting his opinion. He even assigned Hurley to his own tent, both as a privilege intended to cater to his elitism and a way of blocking him from building a faction and fomenting discontent. It's an anti-Lord of the Flies measure. <laughs> Nobody wants to be the piggy. We're gonna start worshipping a dog head on a stake if we don't step in now. Others assigned to Shackleton's tent included Navigator Hudson, who in addition to being quite dim was also irritating, insecure, self-centered, and prone to interrupting. Wonderful. Sounds like a delight. What a champ. The last member of the tent was James, the physicist, whose sheltered academic background left him shaky and unprepared for the more rugged aspects of the venture, and thus Shackleton kept him close. Also excellent. 56-year-old McNeish tended to be dour and quarrelsome, seeing himself as something of an expert on the ways of the seafarer due to his status as an elder mariner. Shackleton thus assigned him to the second tent with where his own right-hand man, Wilde, could keep an eye on him. He's also probably pissed because you murdered his fucking cat. <laughs> Never did forgive it. Never got over it. For all this, their diaries would indicate that the men were in generally high spirits. They spent their evenings playing cards and singing to Hussey's banjo. The men of Tent 5, under Worsley, took turns reading aloud every night. While assigned to Tent 5, Ordelees eventually began sleeping in the impromptu storehouse, to nobody's complaint as he snored, tended to take up a disproportionate amount of space with his clutter, and to forget himself while fetching stew from the galley so that when he returned to the tent it was already cold. Oh, like I, I'd set him out on a nice flow. Get out there. Ordelees suffered an intense fear of starvation and had to be repeatedly reprimanded to give out larger rations. He rarely ate his own full allotment and likewise tended to squirrel away small bits of food on his person. So he's annoying, he's obnoxious, and he probably always smells a bit like cheese. <laughs> McNeish raised the sides on the three whalers, and when they were done, they named each. The James Caird, the Dudley Docker, and the Stancombe Wills. Marston used what remained of his paints to write the names on the side of each boat. By early December, their drift had carried them northward 80 miles, but slowly, as December continued, their course began to curve east. This filled the air with tension, and Shackleton, rather than risk an implosion, decided to act. On December 20th, after a scouting expedition, he announced that they would start westward. But seeing as they would have to leave much food behind, and they would likely have to march through Christmas, they would celebrate the occasion now, and the men could eat whatever they wished for supper, and all the next day. At 3.30 a.m. on December 23rd, the march began. Despite traveling at night, the march was difficult, with the terrain often sloppy and massive ridges blocking their way forward. After complaining constantly for two days, McNeish refused to move, claiming that since the ship had sunk, he was no longer beholden to the articles he signed when taking on service aboard the Endurance. The ultimate loophole. I signed on to work on a ship. I don't see a fucking ship. Where's the boat? Where is it, Ernest? <laughs> <laughs> Worsley, who had been leading the boat team, found himself unequal to the task of commanding McNeish into line and called for Shackleton, who rushed back and took McNeish aside. Rather than argue the impossibility of him refusing to do his part as a member of the team, or the clear stupidity of him trying to strike out on his own, Shackleton pointed out that there had been an additional clause requiring them to perform any duty required of them on shore as well. And this was as close to, to shore as they were going to get. 
<laughs> Still, McNeish, a relatively old man who had been worked to the breaking point, refused to budge, and eventually Shackleton gave up and left him to his thoughts. When they prepared to continue once more, McNeish was at his assigned position. <laughs> Still, before they were to sleep, Shackleton gathered them all round for a reading of the articles as a refresher. Staying here is not an option, sir. Uh, eventually, however, they found they could not continue, because as the way forward was too blocked by ridges and too thin to trust. After an uneasy sleep, they retreated to a relatively stable flow to make camp, from which they could launch further hunting and scouting expeditions. You're having a bad year when a stable ice flow is a luxury for you. Even that flow was cracked and riddled with seawater. They found that not only was there no way forward, there was also no way back, the ice having deteriorated behind them. Hmm. There they spent New Year's Eve, trapped with no idea of how to proceed. They had marched five days and made only nine miles. Oh, shit. Demoralizing. A little bit. Game was slim, but they had a few successes, as well as a rather spectacular near miss. Orda Lees, skiing back to camp after a hunting trip, was tracked and hounded by a leopard seal, an animal best analogized to a polar bear with a top swim speed of 24 miles per hour. That's around 40 kilometers per hour if you'd like to be terrified in metric. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's worse. Yeah, that's worse. <laughs> The seal chased him atop the ice before sliding once more below the water, where it followed his shadow under the ice before lunging out at him again. That's some horror movie shit. I would play a video game of this, honestly. This whole expedition. I, I want a video game of this immediately. Ordalee's screams alerted Frank Wilde, who arrived just as it leapt out the second time. The seal rounded on Wilde, who dropped to one knee and fired his rifle again and again until it dropped, barely 30 feet away. Two dog teams were necessary to drag the dead seal to camp, where they measured its length at 12 feet and estimated its weight at 1,000 pounds. Holy shit. The crew gave the nine-inch-across jawbone to Ordelise as a souvenir. Jesus. <laughs> That's a hefty seal. Big Jungus. The main diet of leopard seals is other fucking seals. <laughs> They're not nice. No, this is a polar bear that can swim. Shackleton was less than enthused with his men's initiative in, in laying stores of food, even ordering them not to bother fetching three, kills ki three seals killed by Ordelese, as four were already being butchered and they had at least a month worth as if preparing to winter where they were was somehow giving up. How dare you prepare to be here for a while? Yeah, this, this bred resentment later on. Maybe when they run out of food? <laughs> Eventually, they began even to tire of Hussie's banjo. Well, damn. <laughs> Just, that's when you know you've lost it. He who is tired of banjo is tired of life. In mid-January, Shackleton ordered all but two teams of dogs shot. On the 19th, they welcomed a fierce northeastward wind with glee. Six days of strong wind carried them over 80 miles north and only 15 miles east. Still, though, the sea ice ahead refused to open. On February 2nd, Shackleton sent a party back to fetch the third whaler. A meat-heavy diet, occasionally supplemented by flour and dog pemmican, had by this point given most of the men constipation and abominable flatulence. That is unpleasant. Not to mention 
the disagreeable effects of using snow as toilet paper. Oh my god. (laughs) Those are some seriously chafed buttholes. (laughs) Never mind, can you imagine crouching out on the ice? Just please, dear lord, let it come. (laughs) I'm so cold. My ass has been out here for far too long. (laughs) Man was not meant to live this way. I just don't think your butt should be out for that long in Antarctica. It seems like a bad idea. Ass frostbite seems unpleasant. Of all the places I would never want frostbite, my taint is pretty high up the list. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure what they even do for you at that one. They just marvel at your achievement, I think, if you get taint frostbite. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I think they just put your picture on the emergency room wall. Like, I don't... I don't even know. Yeah, you're gonna become a story. I'm sorry. The paramedics will leave your name out of it, but you will be a tale told. Oh, you're gonna be told around every doctor and nurse's kitchen table for time immemorial. That's who you are now. You are frostbite taint guy for the rest of time. (laughs) This may not be what you wanted for your legacy, but it's what you have. (laughs) Excellent. They began to run low on food, and on the 10th, they dug up their own refuse heap for the bits of seal that had been previously thrown away. On the 17th, they had the luck to spot several flocks of Adelie penguins, and would end up killing 69 in total. Still, they heard hundreds more more squawking in the fog around them. The next day, they found themselves at the center of a giant penguin migration with thousands of birds, and killed a further 300. No, I mean, penguin genocide's one way to survive the winter. Unfortunately, Adelis are really the- they're really the chicken nugget of the penguins. They're not a substantial meal. Damn. By early March, they had drifted within a hundred miles of the end of the Palmer Peninsula, at whose end sat tiny Pollitt Island. But it lay considerably west by northwest, while they drifted due north. Two, the winds began to grow colder, warning winter would soon come. Finally, on the 9th, they began to feel the rise and fall of the ocean, indicating that nearby was open enough sea for its waves to transmit through the ice pack. The next day, Shackleton had them drill-loading the boat, an acrimonious process where they snapped at one another repeatedly. Rations grew slimmer and slimmer, and not even the cannibalism jokes could really cheer them up. (laughs) Of course they were joking about eating each other the whole time. Nothing diffuses tension like that. Yeah, George Marston, the artist, he was a bit pudgy, and he got just relentless jokes about eating him. (laughs) (laughs) That's good for morale. (laughs) On March 23rd, Shackleton was taking his morning constitutional, which I believe either means he was taking a walk or he was taking a shit. I'm not quite sure. (laughs) Uh, On (laughs) It, It could go either way. On his walk and or poop, he spotted a black object in the distance to the southwest through the fog. He watched it for several minutes, constipation, I suppose, then went back to the tent to fetch Hurley. (laughs) (laughs) The two returned to the edge of the floe to stare at the whatever for several more minutes. Shackleton then ran back to the camp shouting, Land in sight! Land in sight! Some of the men jumped out of bed to look for themselves, while others, too cowed by pessimism, simply rolled over and went back to sleep. (laughs) Eh, fuck it. Land, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I'll get up once we touch land and not a moment sooner. I need my beauty rest. I'm a bit chafed from all the butthole ice. <laughs> <laughs> to hell with the rest of you. This was one of the tiny danger islands, known for its tall, steep bl- tabletop bluffs, 42 miles from their current position and only 20 miles east of Pollet Island. But the pack was too close to launch the boats and too fractured to walk. After several days of sitting, watching land they could not reach, a fight broke out between Macklin and Clark for little reason, which then spread to Ordelees and Worsley. In the hubbub, Greenstreet upset his thin cup of powdered milk, causing him to turn on Clark and curse him out. Clark's protests were drowned out, but when Greenstreet paused to catch his breath, he suddenly stopped, staring at his wasted milk, and the rest stopped too, looking at him haggard, filthy, and thin. Clark reached out and poured some of his milk into Greenstreet's mug, followed by Worsley, Macklin, Rickinson, Kerr, Ordelies, and Blackborough, who all did the same. Aww. Buddies. <laughs> Friends. After breakfast, they managed to snag one of two seals before Shackleton called off the hunt due to dangerous conditions. On the way back, Ordelies collapsed. He had only eaten half his breakfast one-eighth of a pound of dog pemmican and a lump and a half of sugar. But after several minutes rest, he was able to get back on his feet. It's a hearty breakfast. Just dog pemmican and straight sugar. On the next day, April 9th, 1916, at 525, the flow split in two. Cheatham, on watch, shouted for all hands. They manhandled the James Caird into the center of the flow, moving their stores over to one side. Sings settled enough to begin breakfast, but as they were waiting for their rations, the flow cracked again, directly under the James Caird. The men quickly moved the boat. Oh, not good. Shortly after breakfast, a strange shape moved across a nearby section of the old flow. Wilde ran back to his tent to fetch his rifle, dropped to one knee, and fired, Downing an 11-foot leopard seal in a single shot. Jesus. (laughs) Worth another thousand pounds of meat and two weeks of fuel. (laughs) Kind of a feast or famine environment out here. Shackleton declared liver for lunch. Upon butchering it, they also found its stomach full of nearly 50 undigested fish, which they set aside as food for the next day. Interesting. Fermented Ooh. in the stomach of a leopard seal is unusually gourmet for me. Mmm, mm, uh, too bougie for moi. It's a little, little avant-garde. It was then that Shackleton gave the order for the rest of the dogs to be shot. Aww. Again, please skip a minute ahead if you are queasy. Two of Macklin's dogs grabbed a penguin head and a bone as they passed the old meat dump, which they were allowed to keep. The wild spared Macklin the task of the execution. Macklin then skinned and butchered the dogs for meat. Apparently, after month after month of seal, dog is a welcome break, and the taste earned rave reviews back at camp. Honestly, <laughs> I'm not sure how to feel about compliments to the chef referencing the name of the specific animal the meat came from. Yeah, I oh oh, <laughs> that's that's something. It's a little grim. It's a little it's a little dark. Shackleton ordered half the party to be on watch at any given time, dressed and looking for further cracks in the ice. They began to see more and more birds overhead, including a giant petrel spotted by Worsley. Still, there was little change in the ice pack, and Shackleton canceled the sea watches. That night, at 8pm, when Macklin was relieving Ordelise, 
The ice flow cracked barely two feet from Wilde's tent, and they raised the alarm. There was initially a great deal of confusion and chaos before order returned, and they once more moved the tents and supplies to the center of one side of the divide. Shackleton reinstated the sea watch and ordered men off watch to remain fully dressed, including mittens and helmets. April 3rd, they celebrated MacLeod's 49th birthday, toasting his health at lunch. Then, a leopard seal popped its head onto the flow. The birthday boy, a short, stocky man, went over and flapped his arms like a penguin. Apparently convinced, the leopard seal lunged out of the water at MacLeod, who dashed away to safety. The seal rocked forward twice, then paused to fully assess the situation, at which point Wilde shot it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, kind of unsportsmanlike, but I guess these are desperate times. (laughs) Morale improved proportionally to their larder, despite their ice flow now measuring less than 200 yards across. They worried now, close as they were to land, that a more significant westward drift might pull them out to sea. On April 6th, the sky cleared, and they spotted something to the north that was simply too tall to be another iceberg. This had to be either Elephant Island or Clarence Island, most likely Clarence due to the height of its peaks. Still, the fixed point showed that their westward drift had stopped, and they were instead headed north. On April 8th, they found, to their disappointment, that they were now drifting east, away from land. That evening, at 6.45, the ice flow split once more, again under the cared, all hands seizing the boats and hurrying them to one side. At the end, all that was left of their flow was a small triangle of ice, 100 by 120 by 90 yards, meaning that it was a scaling triangle. That's important information. That very that helps me understand their hardships. <laughs> scaling triangles. Just if it was if it was equilateral, you'd know they'd be safe. <laughs> <laughs> This kind of sounds like a children's Saturday morning cartoon physics. Time to calculate the hypotenuse of our doom. (laughs) They're just on this, like, rapidly shrinking piece of ice, drifting in the middle of nowhere. You have to calculate each day it melts, depending on the temperature. It's fun. It's math and death. my, My favorites. The ice move oddly around the boat the next day, opening lanes of water, then closing them again, battering the flow on which they stood. On the third time this happened, around 10.30, Shackleton called all hands to strike the tents and clear the boats. The crew loaded the boats and pushed them to the edge of the flow, when again the flow split, separating the Stancombe wheels and a fair number of supplies. The men shoved the cutters and supplies across and leapt the breach. Then they waited. At 12.40, Shackleton gave the order. Abandon flow, launch the boats into the open but uncertain waters to make a mad dash for Elephant Island. At 1.30, the crew scrambled onto the boats, took oar in hand, and rowed as if their lives had depended on it, which they very much did. They 100% did. They paddled fiercely, knocking away larger chunks of ice, and with every yard they put behind them, they found themselves in clearer water. As they drew near a tall iceberg, they heard, then saw, a river-like current of churning ice, a riptide that they struggled with for nearly 15 minutes, frantically rowing to escape its grasp. They rowed until 5.30, when they found a flat 200-yard flow appropriate to camp on. At 11 p.m., Shackleton, feeling uneasy, left his tent, only to see, moments later, a crack open under his feet and under tent four, containing the eight forecastle hands. The tent collapsed as the gap spread beneath it, followed by a splash. The men scrambled out, but one was missing. 
Oh no. Shackleton rushed forward, pulling the tent out of the way, revealing the gasping, struggling form of the man in the water still caught in his sleeping bag. Shackleton reached down and yanked him out with the strength of a mother grizzly bear rescuing her only cub from the jaws of an ill-mannered potential suitor, heaving fireman Ernie Holness out of the water just as the ice pack slammed back together. (laughs) Also, literally everyone in this story is named Ernest. I'm genuinely confused as to how popular it used to be. (laughs) (laughs) You never hear it as a name anymore. We used up all the Ernest. My uncle Ernie's the last of a noble breed. Last of his kind. We just forgot the importance of being earnest. (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) The flow continued to break apart, and they quickly shoved the carrot across the gap and and leapt themselves. Shackleton, waiting until the others were safe, was stranded when the two chunks drifted apart again, floating away off into the darkness. After what felt like a long time, Shackleton's voice called, Launch a boat. The wheels slid into the water, and six men jumped on board, rowing towards Shackleton's voice. Finally spotting him, they pulled alongside, and he jumped inside. They returned to camp. Shackleton ordered the blubber stove lit, and ordered the men to keep wholeness moving until his clothes dried, as they were, there were no spares to give him. And you can't just be wet and butt naked in the middle of the Antarctic. <laughs> it's a bad choice. The men took turns walking him back and forth for the rest of the night. Rather than complain about his icy clothes, Holness instead chose to grouse about his lost tobacco. Because again, that's what's essential here. Priorities. <laughs> it's not survival supplies or living, it's the tobacco. I'm like, how many matches do you even have? Why the fuck are you using them for this? <laughs> Although apparently they had a habit where like one of them would light it and like the, then the, they would quickly transfer it to everybody else. Ah, communal cigarette lighting. Teamwork. <laughs> Although that kind of makes me think of the most upsetting term I have ever heard for lighting a cigarette with another cigarette, and it is buttfuck. Oh, I have never heard of buttfucking a cigarette. In the sense of, do you mind giving me a buttfuck? I'm out of matches. Oh, <laughs> not a term I'm going to use anytime soon. No, I don't, I don't think I will either. <laughs> no. I, I don't smoke. Me neither, but if I did, still wouldn't use it. If people asked me for a buttfuck every time they wanted a cigarette, I'd be tempted to stop. (laughs) (laughs) They set off again the morning of April 10th, moving through the haze and the slowly loosening ice, and eventually they found themselves in open water, where Shackleton gave the order to loose sail. In the afternoon, high winds forced them to shelter in the lee of a low iceberg. They tried to anchor themselves to the berg with their oars and sleep in the boats, but the rocking was simply too much. They reluctantly made camp atop it. Another of the firemen, Bill Stevenson, took a dunking as they were bringing the boats up the steep side of the berg, but he was quickly fished out. He's fine. Good as new. Just brush him off. (laughs) Just blow on him. He'll be fine. This night was quiet until around dawn, when they found that a gale had surrounded them once more with pack ice extending all the way to the horizon. With every impact, the berg shuddered and caved away a little more. Tall as it was, it might split or upend at any time but they had no choice but to wait. Time and time again, the water would open, and Shackleton would tell them to stand by, and once again, the water would close. Shortly before 2 p.m., the ice parted perfectly as a freak current rose from the depth and deflected off the bottom of the iceberg. They launched the boats quick as they could, almost throwing them into the water. They took off, pushing the ice ahead of them, out of the way so that they could proceed to the next clear pool, and eventually to open water. 
Given their likely distance from either Elephant or Clarence Island, they decided to instead make for King George Island, then island hop to Deception Island a hundred miles beyond it, where there might be a cache of food for castaways, as well as a small wooden chapel that might be used for timber. They're gonna cut up a church. Absolutely. We're gonna rip out the pages of a Bible, we're gonna cut out a church. The formalities of religion only last so long as you are not wiping your ass with ice. (laughs) (laughs) Once you've reached that point, spirituality goes out the window. They continued to row through the night with lookouts on the alert for ice flows, bergs, and breaching whales. At 10.30 the next morning, Worsley took readings, only to find that they were a full 22 miles farther from land than when they had launched three days prior. They couldn't reach King George Island through the strait because a powerful current was blocking their way and pushing them back. I'd be a little mad. I would be mad. I'd be somewhat miffed. To have gotten all this way, I'd be mad. The deeps shall take me. I'm just walking off the boat. (laughs) Fuck it. (laughs) Fuck all y'all. Again, they changed course. Again, they rode through the night. And after sunrise, the wind swung towards the northwest. And Shackleton and Worsley decided that they would again change course, as now conditions were perfect to make a charge for Elephant Island 100 miles away. The wind only strengthened as the day went on. Shackleton had allowed unlimited rations to make up for the exhaustion and lack of sleep, which was of little comfort to the seasick, in particular Ordelise. But seeing as Ordelise whined constantly, refused to row, and did a poor job when forced, smashing Care's fingers with every mistimed stroke, the rest of the crew simply mocked him. (laughs) (laughs) You useless bastard! Worsley suggested they continue to row through the night, but Shackleton refused, knowing that Hudson, who headed the Wills, the least seaworthy boat, was beginning to falter under the strain, and if they lost the Wills in the darkness, he would be unable to lead them to safety. Shackleton instead ordered the docker to rig a sea anchor and lash the three boats together. The night was cold, wet, and miserable, containing very little sleep. The only warmth to be had on the docker was to curse everything and everyone, though particularly Ordelise, who had taken the only set of oilskins and the most comfortable place in the boat primarily by shoving Marston out of the way. It's wild how many people wanted to come on this voyage, because so far none of it sounds like fun. Four thousand. Four thousand people wanted to squat in a boat with a dozen other men and cry. (laughs) Eating dog jerky on a piece of ice. But while the water was ankle-deep in the docker, it was knee-deep in the wills. The men had to regularly chip the ice forming on the bow of the wills, lest it pull them under. In the morning, they saw the peaks of Clarence Island off the starboard, then Elephant Island dead ahead. The men were haggard and gray, and Black Boro had lost all feeling in his feet, and was unable to restore circulation. Ooh, that's not good. That is a bad sign. Not a place you want to be without feet. No. Feet notably useful in a survival situation. (laughs) Recommend, if at all possible, to have feet. (laughs) The ability to walk. (laughs) Important. Especially now that you've killed all the dogs. Macklin and Greenstreet had both developed frostbite in their feet as well. Greenstreet's far worse. Ordelise, in a shocking episode of awareness for anything beyond his own comfort, massaged the life back into Greenstreet's cold-stricken feet, even opening his shirt and pressing them against his chest. That is some man-to-man intimacy. I like it. It's it's so, like, old-timey homoerotic. 
It is. It's the kind of perfect early 20th century homoeroticism you only get on a boat out in the Antarctic. It's the kind of thing that, like, queer studies theorists, like, if you put it in a book, queer studies theorists a hundred years later would have written, like, thousands of articles about. (laughs) As is, it's two real fucking men, so they're just being bros. (laughs) Just, I got your back, bro. Let me give you a bottom-of-the-world foot massage, bro. <laughs> it's it's not gay if I say no homo and we're nearly starving to death. <laughs> At 2 p.m., they ran against a strong headwind that held them back, unable to make any distance no matter how they tried. It finally died down at 5 p.m., and they frantically rowed, only for the wind to whip up again. Worsley asked to proceed independently in the docker, while the cared stayed with the wills. Around midnight, they lost sight of the docker, and they tried to signal her with matches, but though the men of the docker saw, they could not respond, as their own candle had to be sheltered under a canvas, and it simply wasn't bright enough to shine through. The men of the docker took a heavy pounding from the waves, and orderlies, who had been huddled at the bottom of the boat, disrupting its balance, abruptly twigged that they might be sinking, and alongside Cheatham, desperately began to bail out the boat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess that he would be the first to know. (laughs) If nothing else, he's going to be aware of how high the water has gotten. He's basically the human equivalent of a gas tank meter. You just hang out at the bottom and you tell us how high the liquid is. That's your whole job. At 3 a.m., Macklin attempted to relieve Worsley, who had led them tirelessly through the last five days. But Worsley could barely unbend from his sitting position and had to be laid out at the bottom of the boat and massaged until he could unclench. By then, he had fallen unconscious. Oh. Greenstreet and Macklin attempted to navigate using Worsley's pocket compass by brief flares of matchlight, aiming southwest and hoping they hadn't been blown out to sea. At last, dawn came, and they found that Elephant Island was less than a mile away. Then, a sudden gust sent a massive wave down onto them, forcing them to drop sail and row for their lives, turning themselves into the wave so that it wouldn't capsize them. Another wave, this one six feet, bore down. McLeod shook, then repeatedly kicked Worsley to wake him. Worsley sat up and yelled at them to hoist sail and get away from it. Did they, like, wrong God in some way? They're almost out of things that could go wrong. It's amazing none of them have died by this point. It's statistically incredible. It it, it feels like one of them had said that Mrs. Chippy was more beautiful than Aphrodite. (laughs) This feels like some old gods shit. It's just like an Antarctic book of Job. Like, what is this? (laughs) This is biblical. It is. They've upset somebody. Like, what goat did you fuck in a past life? (laughs) Somebody did something, because there's no way that any expedition should be this cursed. The wave hit them and filled the boat with water, forcing them all to desperately bail. Worsley retook control and turned north, running ahead of the gale and the waves pursuing them. At last, they set ashore, where the men scooped up floating chunks of ice and ate them, the first fresh water they'd had in two days. After combing the coast, they feared the worst, until after 14 miles, they came across the other two boats, trying to navigate a landing of a tiny shingled beach. Blackborough had to be pulled up the beach by Howe and Blakewell, while Greenstreet hobbled to join him. The toes on Blackborough's left foot would later be amputated on June 15th. 
This was, at very least, slightly more dignified than Hudson's eventual horrific football-sized butt abscess. Oh. Oh. Oh, my God. (laughs) There is nothing dignified about a football-sized butt abscess. (laughs) There's there's just no coming back from that. That's a rough hand. (laughs) As the boats were being pulled up, 32-year-old Rickinson collapsed of an apparent mild heart attack. Just a mild one, you know. Just a mild heart attack. At 32. (laughs) After 497 days, they were on land. That land showed signs of high tides, (laughs) and they would eventually have to move, but for the moment, they were safe. My god. (laughs) Nothing's gonna go right. Wilde took a team to scout out a safer beach, and the transfer contained its own perils, with the docker once again getting blown wildly off course. When they finally joined the other two teams at the new site, Greenstreet stumbled out of the boat, up the beach, and shoved his frostbitten hands directly into a steaming pile of the guts of a freshly butchered seal. (laughs) Luke Skywalker Tauntaun style. Absolutely. When needs must, mmm, seal guts. Just like wrapping your hands around a fresh cup of coffee. Except... gross (laughs) so gross so fucking gross much gooier than the club much much gooier while there was enough on elephant island to survive for a time it was far from a perfect solution nor could they as one group continue on rather on april 20th shackleton announced that he would take a party of five of the strongest men upon the cared make it seaworthy as possible and head for thouse georgia to bring back help This was a formality, as the issue had already been broadly discussed. While the men left behind would dig in to secure themselves against the winter, the cared team would ride a prevalent current along the treacherous Drake Passage over 800 miles in search of rescue. While the odds weren't good, many preferred to head out into the unknown rather than sit here on Elephant Island with their thoughts. (laughs) The crew would consist of Worsley and McNeish, whose skills were indispensable, Vincent and Timothy McCarthy, two of the strongest seamen, and Tom Crean, who had begged to come, and whose temperament meant he was best not left behind to stew. Wilde would be left in charge of Elephant Island, with instructions should Shackleton fail to return. I love that he's just too much of a moody teenager to be left behind. (laughs) He's gonna sulk. We've gotta put him on the boat. You're gonna upset everybody else. (laughs) You're gonna get mad. (laughs) (laughs) You have to come with me. I'm going to bring you with me like you're an angry purse dog. (laughs) (laughs) On the 24th, they launched, and while the prevailing wind bore them northwest, ice settled over the Caird, causing her to maneuver sluggishly. She was battered by waves and nearly destroyed on May 5th. On May 8th, however, they sighted South Georgia, and two days later, after battling hurricane winds, they landed at King Hakon Bay. There they rested while Shackleton planned. They could take a boat around to the inhabited north side of the island, but Vincent and McNeish's conditions after the voyage made this risky. Instead, Shackleton, Worsley, and Crean would have to make a land crossing, leaving McNeish in charge. They left on May 19th. They had no map of the interior, and the terrain was rocky and steep, requiring a fair degree of backtracking. They sledged down valleys on makeshift rope sledges and hiked through the night, arriving at Huskvik Harbor by the next morning. That afternoon, when they arrived at the Stromness base, 
startling two children. Why are there children in Antarctica? Yeah, there's just two 11-year-old children. I'm like, what? <laughs> just chillin'. Yeah. <laughs> Shackleton requested the equally startled station foreman to take him to the station manager. The newly installed manager, Toralf Zorl, was already an acquaintance of Shackleton, but when he saw them with their unkempt beers and ragged parkas, his first response was a long pause, followed by, Who the hell are you? <laughs> it's a fair question. <laughs> After a meal and a bath, Worsley helped guide a ship to the spot on the other side of the island to pick up the other three members of the cared party. It took a total of four attempts with four different ships. First, a wooden whaling ship, then a small Uruguayan surveyor, followed by a wooden schooner. Finally, on August 30th, 1916, they arrived at Elephant Island aboard the Yelcho, an ancient tugboat on loan from the Chilean government, and quickly loaded the 22 men onto the ship to carry them to safety. All survived, and though their return to civilization was overshadowed by the still-raging Great War, it briefly managed to make into the otherwise preoccupied news. This leaves us with one loose end yet untied. What of the crew of the Aurora on the other side of Antarctica? While they were delayed by crew resignations and the need to raise additional funds and make alterations to the ship in Australia, the Aurora landed on Cape Evans on the 8th, uh, 16th of January, 1915. Due to the inexperience of the Ross Sea Party, the rush to complete the depot laying, and several mishaps, the shores, shore party's mission was somewhat chaotic. In particular, Commander McIntosh repeatedly failed to heed the advice of Joyce, the team's most experienced member, refusing to allow time for acclimatization and training and getting all of the dogs killed early in the depot laying. Oh, great. Let's just dive right in. On the way back, the depot party got stuck on the wrong side of the sea ice from their base at Cape Evans. After three months' wait at Hut Point on the other side, they managed the crossing in early June, only to find that the Aurora, whose inexperienced first mate had chosen an inappropriate winter berth, had been blown from her moorings and out to sea, taking much supplies, equipment, and fuel with her. Fail. Big fail. <laughs> Just useless. As the only officer, McIntosh struggled to connect with the nine men left under his command, and several obvious blunders and Joyce's vocal criticism eroded confidence in his leadership. They continued regardless with the laying of the depots, leaving their one scientist behind at Cape Evans. One team of three men was forced to return to base after only a few days due to the failure of their stove. Against advice, McIntosh pressed on to lay the last depot at Mount Hope, despite photographer and clergyman Arnold Spencer Smith having collapsed, likely scurvy, and being left behind in a tent at the second last depot at the 83rd parallel. Spencer Smith had to be carried on a sledge on the return journey, and McIntosh, also suffering the effects of scurvy, occasionally had to join him. Get on the scurvy sledge! You useless man with no vitamin C in your system, onto the sledge with you. Eat an orange, you irresponsible son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Notably, both Spencer Smith and Macintosh disliked the taste of seal, the only fresh food and the only good source of vitamin C available. The other members likewise struggled with scurvy, frostbite, and snow blindness, but nowhere to the same degree. March 8th, Macintosh volunteered to be left behind in a tent to be fetched later so that the others could get Spencer Smith to safety, but he died the next day. Ooh, so much for that then. Another member of the party, clerk Victor Hayward, had likewise collapsed, so they buried Spencer Smith and strapped Hayward to the sled instead, bringing him to Hut Point, then returning for Macintosh, arriving with him on March 18th. 
There, they gradually recovered with the help of some fresh seal, but they were unable to cross to Crape Evans, once again due to unstable conditions in McMurdo Sound. On May 8th, after a survey of the ice, McIntosh announced that he and Hayward were prepared to make the crossing. The other three disagreed, but did not attempt to physically stop them. Incidentally, said men were Ernest Joyce, Ernest Wilde, and a young Australian science teacher, Dick Richards, indicating both that Ernest indeed used to be a far more popular name, and that some cruel mother named her child Richard Richards. I was just thinking that. I'm like, hang on. <laughs> That's a nickname. Oh, it's for Richard. That's right. That's a terrible choice. At a certain point, you just accept being called Dick. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the better choice here, which is... Finally, a context in which Dick is the better name. <laughs> and if you think a single expedition having two men named Wild is a weird coincidence, it's not. They're brothers. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Richard said in a later interview that Hayward seemed less than confident, but the two left nonetheless. Shortly after they fell out of sight, a blizzard swept up, raging for the next two days. When it subsided, Joyce and Richards followed their footsteps out onto the ice until they reached a large crack where the prince suddenly stopped. Ooh. When the other three made the crossing in June, they found that neither had made it to Cape Evans. Seeing as it's been over a hundred years since they disappeared, I think we can safely assume they're dead. Yeah, they're probably not turning up anytime soon. <laughs> probably not. The Aurora, meanwhile, had itself become caught in pack ice and drifted helplessly for 312 days before it was freed and managed to struggle its way back to New Zealand for repairs. The joint committee assigned to the case by Australia, Britain, and New Zealand, critical of Shackleton's early organization, which, fair, removed Joseph Stenhouse as too inexperienced for command. They likewise saw rescuing Shackleton's party, which hadn't been heard from since December 1914, as the clear priority. But their inaction was such that Shackleton himself was able to join the crew of the Aurora as a supernumerary officer when they returned to McMurdo Sound to rescue the stranded men on January 10th, 1917. There's no amount of incompetence that will stop you from failing up. <laughs> At least if you're Shackleton. I mean, he, he only managed to get added as a supernumerary officer. He was not in command. Still, though... I, he was later given a diplomatic position that he was not good at. <laughs> what is he good at at this point? It's not putting a crew together. It's definitely not Antarctic exploration. I mean, I think what he's good at is just keeping people together. That's it. We, we They didn't lose very many people. And he's very good at making dog jerky, apparently. Like, the thing about Shackleton is when he was not in a crisis, he didn't make great decisions. But, like, he really did understand people. He understood people. He understood how to motivate them. He understood how to get them together. And he understood how to communicate that he had their back. If it wasn't for the fact that he was bad with money, took too many risks, and had no business sense, he might have been a very successful man. <laughs> it was actually not until 1955 that another expedition would even attempt a crossing of the Antarctic, this time successfully. The Commonwealth Trans-Antarctic Expedition, led by a man named, I shit you not, Sir Vivian Fuchs. I love it. <laughs> and Sir Vivian, he Fuchs. <laughs> but yeah, that's the drift of the endurance. Excellent. Led by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Finest man of our time. <laughs> Whether we like it or not. <laughs> 
Like, that's, that's the thing about Shackleton. Like, Scott got a bunch of his people into a mess, and he got them all killed. Or Shackleton got them into a mess, and then he got them the fuck out. <laughs> Which I think is the most you can ask for a frat bro. You know, it's respectable. Minimal casualties. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I, ha- I have been Jessica. And I am still Janelle. And we are fat, fat French, French, and, and fabulous. fabulous.